Welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions which are facing the world today. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today's dilemma is, does the uncontrollable growth of large cities endanger smart and sustainable living? From adaptive traffic lights to wooden skyscrapers, what's the future of cities? Metropolitan paradises or sweeping suburbia? How do you make a city for real people? What are Pocket Dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is Dilemmas at EBRD.com. So in ants, for instance, the communication is very simple. I think they have about eight different uh, hormones they release, but just it's like having eight words in a language but they create very complex uh, organizations. So humans, we are not that different from ants, but somehow 6,000 years ago, we started building cities. So in in that case, it's it's incredible how many little individual decision-making generates as a complex system that actually is very hard to understand. I like to think of myself as a bit different from an ant, but that was uh, Ivan Pazos, uh, award-winning architect who invented the city growth prediction algorithm. By now, most of us have heard that some uh, that when you get to around 2050, the world's population is expected to reach the staggering 9.8 billion mark. Nearly 70% of people are expected to live in urban centres with technological uh, technology disruption reshaping urban landscapes. We're left really to ponder how to transform our cities for the future of living, working and governing. Since the very beginning of cities, humans always had a tendency to plan how their future cities should look. However, some plans and ideas were so far-fetched that perhaps we should just mention them. Quartz Online uh, offers great selection of myths surrounding the future of cities, and let me just give you a few examples. In the 1920s, a popular science mock-up of the city of the future suggested a town built vertically rather than horizontally would be the way forward, with aircraft landing fields on top of buildings, spiral escalators going four levels underground, self-reliant building communities with uh, schools and businesses intermixed with housing. Perhaps that's not so far off the truth. In the 1930s, Francis Keeley, the architect of the Brooklyn Public Library, was convinced that modern life would be dominated by blimp travel. Well, we could have another blimp crisis, I suppose. Who knows? Uh, how do we predict what the future of the city looks like? To find this out, we reached out again to Ivan Pazos, the architect and the uh, lead author of a study which uses an algorithm to predict the growth of cities. He explained to us how we can use disruptive technology to see how cities will grow and how we can improve our policymaking. So what algorithm can help is to help you to understand better how the city works or how any system works. Yeah, well, a lot of times um, policymaking is, is driven by a little bit like populism or, or just what, you know, let's just do what people want. But many times uh, policymakers or governments, or they introduce some policies and they don't really know what that policy is going to happen. So, so the, the governments introduce a new policy and then 10 years later, we see what happened, a policy. You could change the parameters of the algorithm and test what is going to happen over the next few years and then see, is this what we really want or not? So let's uh, take a look at this in a bit more detail. Uh, we have our guests here, Jacques Bougain, director of the McKinsey Global Institute, and the EBRD's Tara Shivani, who looks after sustainable transport. Uh, Jacques, uh, first of all, in five seconds, in your mind, what makes a good city? Well, simply say it, a good city is the livable city where you can earn a living, where it's good to live, where there's entertainment, 
and where uh, you can find a way to get healthy. Sarah? I mean, for me, a city is one that works. It's one that is inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. Okay, well, look, cities are facing huge challenges. There's climate change and the need to adapt to that, resource scarcity, yeah, overcrowding, poor living standards, pressure on transport and infrastructure, this growth, which at times in some cities seems uncontrollable. These challenges are all interlinked, though, aren't they? How do you even begin to think about addressing these complex challenges, yeah? Well, you need to start to plan. And the good news is that today most of the smart city project that we see is based on planning what the city of the future is going to look like to solve these problems. Are there learning lessons from what other cities are doing, peer learning, past learning? Plenty. First is that it's not something that you do in one day. It will take experiments and failure keep pushing to try to do private and public partnership because it's all about building the infrastructure. And three, as we said, what makes a good city? It's a livable city. So design it in such a way that people will actually use it for their own benefit. Tara, do you think cities can learn from each other and from the EBRD experience? We're often trying to compare cities where, where we invest and try to help them. Absolutely. I think it's very important to find the balance between striking the an ecosystem of city density and the quality of life. And sometimes they may, that may seem contradictory. However, it's very important to find this complementary approach, approach between transit-oriented development and public space management, or kind of placemaking, as you think. And really that together, combined effectively, can help us transform our cities. And we've seen it successfully applied in some of the cities already. Do you think it's right to look at cities as one entity? And the reason I ask that is that within cities, you have huge divisions uh, between some urban areas that are doing well, some that are not so well, some even within cities that are really speeding ahead, some areas are being left behind. That's the concept of a city. It's an agglomeration of different segments that basically needs to live together. And at the end of the day, some will be lagging, some will be thriving and so on. So, uh, yes, in fact, this is what the uh, what a city looks like. Now, if your question is, should we actually try to catch up on some of those uh, uh, left behind? The answer is the best city that thrives are the ones that take care of the left behind because it creates that diffusion of the new practices that make a city livable. Can you have equal growth, though, uh, throughout a city? Because, I mean, you know, you're, you're, that's very hard to achieve. Uh, growth is not... Uh, an objective. Growth is actually the outcome of what a city lives well. So the more livable a city is, the more attractive it will be for people to come in and to continue to stay in the city. So the fact that you have multiple growth pocket is actually simply a, a reflection of that dynamics in the city. What do you think about that, Tara, and this whole question of how do you go about bridging inequality? within cities? I mean, I've, what I've seen is that cities have become more responsible for providing more services to more people, but there's just lack of sufficient resources to do so. I mean, we see one billion urban residents already living in overpopulated slums just to be close to economic activities and jobs. And one of the areas I think where we can really kind of tackle this issue of overcrowding is the topic of urban regeneration and helping cities address the rising demand for land by densifying existing urban cores, particularly pockets of underused or, un or disinvested land, because higher density is associated with economic growth and social integration. 
And so the denser or transit-friendlier a city is, it can also help you lower carbon emissions, reduce pollution, and contribute to increased resilience. Jacques, do you have a recipe for, for dealing with inequality in cities? Have you seen solutions that some cities are pursuing which uh, really would be applicable more widely? There is no recipe. In fact, inequality, as I said, is part of what the city stands for. But I guess we see some mayors, for example, where the EBRD is operating to encourage uh, cities to take leaps forward. We see some mayors doing things. If you look at Tirana, where the mayor there has said that education is absolutely key. You've got one of the youngest capitals in, in Europe there. It's growing uh, because the mayor is investing heavily in education. Is that the sort of solution that can really make a difference? It will make a difference in the sense that education is uh, one of the fundamental uh, way to make sure the city is becoming livable. But but the principle is that you're going to have to work on many dimensions for a city to be livable. You have to work on the design, you have to work on the infrastructure, you have to work on the education, you have to work on the fact that companies are coming back into the center of the city to create, obviously, that work, livable cities and so on. So the, the insight is it's not a one-trick pony. You need to basically, in parallel, work on five or six of these dimensions to make the city livable. And the cities like Toronto, the cities like Los Angeles, cities uh, like New York, cities like uh, Stockholm are all working in parallel on five or six dimensions to make the city livable. And, and part of that making a city livable, Tara, is investment in transport and sustainable infrastructure, isn't it? Absolutely. I think sometimes, you know, it sounds very trivial, but basic infrastructure makes all the difference in people's lives. And sometimes a road is all it takes, really, because it's about access to markets, roads, access to education, opportunities to link the rural to the urban areas, and really this topic of urban regeneration. How can we ensure that cities focus on development or relocation of specific assets towards ensuring more connectivity, reconstruction of new parks, civic spaces, repurposing underutilized areas such as ports and other former industrial sites. These are all examples, I think, where really a city can take action and create more opportunities for growth and jobs. Let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions facing the world today. You can download, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts from. And our dilemma today, does the uncontrolled growth of large cities endanger smart and sustainable living? Jacques, let me ask you technology. You know, there's been a lot of focus on technology being the solution to cities. You know, smart cities, that, that phrase was all the rage. It's a bit less now, perhaps. Uh, but, but where does technology technology fit into this equation? Well, the promise of technology was that if everything is smart and scalable, people will start to use all these new applications that will make a cities livable. First point is that technology does not solve the problem. It is that people want to use these applications. It's a lot about incentive and actually behavior. Uh, the second point is that technology is today at a stage where it's becoming much more powerful than just simply digitizing an infrastructure. If we think about the issues of transports, the issue of transports is not optimizing transports. It's optimizing multi-modes of transports. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that when you come to train, then the metro will give you the right link to where you want to go? And that's problem of solving this network of multi-modes 
it's too complex today for your brain to do it. Technology can help doing that. So smart technology, artificial intelligence, these tools of data is possibly the promise for technology to finally help CT to grow and be much more livable. Tara, where does technology fit in from where you're sitting? Well, I mean, to paraphrase Bill Gates, you know, he once said, we tend to overestimate the changes that will happen in the short term and underestimate those in the long terms. And I really think that is the example of technology. And Jacques meant, uh, mentioned the, the topic around mobility as a service, really, that I think is a key one that also the addresses the um, kind of bridging the gap around inequality. Uh, we see that really blockchain technology paves the path for transforming mobility as a service, where a user may access different modes of transport, three-wheelers, bus, metro, train, on just a single platform with seamless connectivity. And that is really a paradigm shift in redefining the customer needs in terms of service rather than the mode of transport. And the affordability really kind of comes in because it makes sense for using digital payments that are integrated across all modes of transport. And so far, payment systems today in many of our systems actually charge a transaction fee of between 0.5 to 5%. And this hampers the faster uptake of digital payments. But if you can eradicate that through the use of blockchain technologies, then all the users of a city will be better off. We, we talk very blithely about cities, and we've been talking just about the you know, the word city, but actually all cities are different. Um, it's it's a very different approach, presumably, you'd have to take to building a brand new city to trying to adapt an old city. A brand new city, you can make it as state as art as you want. You can make it as attractive to people as you want. We've got huge numbers of cities, very ancient cities, whether they're London or Paris, wherever they happen to be, uh, which which are, it's a far tougher task, isn't it, adapting them? Well, the, the challenge is adaptation. And as you have said, if you happen to be a very powerful city with a design which was fitting an industrial revolution, it's very difficult to migrate it to a knowledge service revolution. You got the legacy problem, you got the legacy infrastructure problem. Uh, yes, it's quite, quite challenging. The good news is that uh, the legacy cities tend to be richer, possibly have more power and much more density of people to basically come to new solutions. Uh, the new cities have the power of a, a, a clean sheet and can actually piggyback on some of the findings of the first smart city deployment. Where does the private sector come in here, Jacques? Because clearly there's not enough public sector money to really do all of this work. So, so how do you incentivize the private sector to do even more? Uh, that's a fact that today the private has not possibly invested to the level of the potential of what the smart city is going to look like, especially if you want it to be livable. Uh, our estimates is that 50% uh, of the cases, they could be better off by doing a public-private partnership where the return on investment is actually uh, quite good. So first, we have to show them the reality of the use cases. Two, we need to make sure that the two parties trust each other. It's not necessarily the DNA and the culture of the public and the private to talk to each other. And three, let's stop about looking at the history of you know, public-private partnership based on pure physical infrastructure. As Tara had said, the world is moving to digital infrastructure, to services, to intangible. That's where the promise of the public-private partnership is actually there. And that question, Tara, PPPs, public-private partnership, you know, they're not easy to engineer uh, to bring the two sides together. 
there's a lot of it we're trying to do in the EBRD. That, that's, but it's, it's, it's difficult. Do you find good examples where that's happening? I mean, I agree definitely that well-structured, well-managed PPP programs can contribute to innovation and efficiency and financing of the private sector in a single package. But uh, I think the problem is that we've seen across our countries of operation is one of manifold, and one of the big problems is one of scale. When you're looking at investing in smart city technologies, you really have to, as Jacques says, take a holistic approach and just investing in, let's say, automizing building infrastructure, investing in sensors, IoT sensors, by itself is just too small of a scale to really consider for us to kind of say that this is um, significant enough. So what I think is very important is PPP partnerships have to be designed in a way that there's really attractive for the market to kind of look at this as a holistic investment package. And that is sometimes a bit challenging. Let me remind you of our dilemma today that we've been considering is, uh, does the uncontrolled growth of large cities endanger smart and sustainable living? If there's one thing, just in conclusion, I could ask you both, one thing that you think we should really focus on, what, what would it be? Where should our focus be to get this right, Jack? One thing, dare, try and scale. Tara? Oh, um, one thing I think would be try to balance the inclusiveness with the sustainability angle when you are um, designing and planning for uh, your citizens. Okay, look, my worry is what happens if we, by the way, if we get this wrong, if we don't achieve this, what, what's, where do we get to, Jack? That's a tough question. <laughs> I like to ask tough questions. <laughs> a city is composed of so many dimensions, so yes, you're going to fail on a few, on a few. Uh, and but you're going to basically win on a few others. There is no single case of smart city experiment that we've seen so far where everybody has been excellent and basically get everything right. But the fact of the matter, if you got five or six out of the 10 experiments that you do to work, it's enough for having a city to grow. The last thing I would say is pretty much what Tara said. There are a few dimensions of livable city that overweight the rest. It's obviously... The, the way that you can still live decently in the city, affordable pricing of houses, you know, easy ways to, 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 to flow into the city, i.e. avoiding congestion. And of course, today it's about pollution and sustainability. Thank you very much, Jacques. Thank you, Tara. I mean, having listened to all of that, I think my conclusion would be the stakes are huge here because with the vast majority of us in future even more of us living in cities. If we don't get this right, you know, the downsides could be pretty horrendous. But if we do get it right, actually, the potential and the economic potential is, is absolutely huge. Let me remind you, you've been listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. We'd love you to review us on iTunes. You can email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. We always like to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter at EBRD. This is a debate that we're going to be continuing as we look at this trend on cities in the uh, months ahead. So you'll be hearing more from us on this. But for the moment, goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time. <laughs>